Welcome to your favorite YouTube channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. One of my favorite cartoonists in the entire universe. Uncle Gilbert Hernandez is in the house, dude, and we are lucky to have him. Please lay down some of that bibliography and let's get into things. It feels like love and rockets is all that needs to be said, but what a bibliography. Uh, Palomar, Sloth, Julio's Day, Blubber, Girl Crazy, I could go on and on. I've said this before, but seriously, one of the most prolific cartoonists that we've had the pleasure of talking with. Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe, Gilbert Hernandez. Thank you, sir. Oh, thank you. When you said favorite cartoonist, I was waiting for Tony Tallarico's name. <laughs> <laughs> this is a legendary, uh, a legendary piece of the Matt Groening interviews whenever he's in like you know comics journal or when he's when he's talking about his the salad days right of of making his comics and things and he's like you know i went to this record store and and i had a signing with uh the dudes from love and rockets and there was nobody at my table they were all at uh the the bros table uh is that true do you do you know which day he's talking about um if i'm thinking there might have been a couple of times that the main one was it was golden apple comics uh in, in hollywood and it was Matt Groening and, and us, and it wasn't really that big, you know, a crowd. It was pretty small because it was early days, uh, but we did have, you know, friendly fans and the people just didn't associate him with Life in Hell, which was in the free press, so they didn't really, you know, uh, we knew how good he was. We knew, you know, what his stuff was, but you know, so he just kind of like scribbled a bunch of stuff for fans and this and that. But then again, like about a few years later, he showed us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did okay for himself. <laughs> Gilbert, it's interesting because if, I feel like the, the, the tables flipped because I would hear stories about you guys doing conventions, you know, before we had like indie comics and alternative comics conventions. What was it like being a cartoonist doing Love and Rockets, but going to something like Dallas Comic Con or, or you know, one of these big mainstream shows and maybe not being a part of what you grew up loving, you know, being a part of that community. Did you feel that? Um, I, we, we felt it was sort of a slow crawl to get noticed. We figured, we just figured that's what it was because we came from nowhere, so we didn't have expectations. But every, you know, we went to several Dallas cons and it was just me, Jaime, and uh, Dan Klaus figuring out what we were going to do because we just sat there, you know, and Chris Ware came by and everybody was new and young and, we just sort of just sat around while the mainstream kids were on the other half of the con, you know, so I don't know. I just felt it was, you know, that's a slow crawl for us. We, we came from nowhere and nobody's heard of us. And our comic came, when it first came out, it's sort of a novelty, quirky. Time it drew so well, he had dinosaurs and he had all this kind of stuff going on. So that's what drew, drew people to it. But once Hyman started saying, well, I want to do something else, that's when they started to drop off. And it wasn't because of the quality uh, was was going bad. It was just they weren't interested in two people talking at the time. This is 1982, three. You know, they didn't care. They just they wanted action. They wanted goofy monsters. Like I've always said, it goes. It's more interesting to most readers to have an alien asking for spare change than it is a real person. Well, we switched to the real person asking for spare change, but they wanted the alien asking for spare change. Now we could have done that. You know, we could have kept on that. And I've talked to Jaime about this before. We would have run out of material in two issues. We have absolutely nothing to say with that sort of science fiction-y adventure. Yeah, one cop, Jaime outdid himself for Love and Rockets too. He went completely, he put himself so much science fiction, action, beautiful girls, all kinds of stuff going on. What's he gonna do the next issue? You know, you, you just have so many of those stories. 
I think the mainstream writers have a lot of those so they can keep going. Whereas we just, that was it. So let's just do real people. <laughs> yeah. When, when Left and Rocket starts up, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's 1982, uh, before Dan Klaus really like like who were your peers? Uh, I, th I think about the letters columns and uh, you might get it's interesting because you would get like a Steve Lee Aloha showing up in there or like uh, Kurt Busick would, would show up. But who were your peers when you would go to those conventions and stuff? Because like Klaus tells a story about discovering Love and Rockets and we had Seth mm -hmm. on not too long ago about discovering Love and Rockets. Uh, is it you and the Flaming Carrot? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I Flaming Carrot and uh, you know Elfquest and Cerebus. Those, well, because they were indie comics, so they were kind of lumped together and, you know, it was sort of, uh, so we're part of that at first, you know, just because people didn't know what to do with it. Black and white, you know, it's it's kind of underground, kind of mainstream, kind of heavy metal, kind of this and that. And uh, it just went, you know, it, and then it just started to fade, you know, and then the younger kids came, like Pete Bag, you know, was maybe a year younger than me. <laughs> the younger kids, Klaus, uh, you know, we'd start to see, you know, Chester Brown, uh, used to see. Uh, and they were good, and they were they were coming through, and they came through, and like, all right, we, we were part of this new thing, and the artists that came in at that time were just like, you know, already ready, we were ready to go, man, we're ready to have an alternative scene, you know, it was great. So, but before there wasn't really many. Uh, Will Eisner and Harvey Kurtzman, that's who we talked to at cons. You know, there was there was nobody doing uh, comics like us. You know, you know what? Seems pretty good. <laughs> Can you tell us the story because like. It was only ever anecdotal. Never asked one of the guys that was up on the dais. It's you. It's uh, Crum. Maybe your brother. Maybe Klaus. Mm -hmm. Definitely a Bern Hogarth. Oh yeah. And uh, tell tell us about that that uh, conversation, that panel. When, I say Bern Hogarth. They were kind of upset about the new comics coming out as because his his problem, at least that's what he's talked about, was that. Uh, the new artists were neurotic, quiet, just didn't talk. Uh, yeah, I did this comic, like, oh, I don't know, I didn't think, of, you know, that was the answers. And he wanted everybody to stand up for art and stand up for the truth and this and that. He was just that kind of guy and he would yell at you. Uh, and so, and he was, he didn't like Crumb. Crumb was on the other side, he was next to me. And Crumb was just like, saying shit, you know, like, oh man, this guy's, oh man. And Crumb likes the attention, right? So that's why he did the pratfall. That's why he fell back. <laughs> to shut Bernard Hogarth out, and I could hear Bohart was fucking crumb, you know, and uh, <laughs> it, like, uh, and then we, but we didn't have any answers because uh, Bernard Hogarth kept saying, "Well, what is your, you know, what is your passion? What are you doing? What do you want? Talk about your passion. Get crazy." And then finally, Paul Margrides, who was his instant uh, assistant to, uh, to Gilbert Shelton, who eventually took over, take drawing, uh, you know, Freak Brothers and stuff. He just stepped in and decided, no, 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 we're just different. We do different things. And then there was the big fight, big fight, this and that, and Crumb and everybody. And we were just sitting there going, people paid to see us talk. And Bern Hogarth was just taking over the whole thing. Now, if you talk to Gary Groff, he'll tell you a completely different story. He thought how Bern Hogarth was magnificent and just tore everybody up and just did this great thing. And the audience are going, who is this guy? I mean, an audience, a woman in the audience called him Bern. <laughs> Vern, she goes, well, who's this Vern guy? You know, we're like, ah, you know, but I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to jump in because Bern Hogarth was always really cool to me. He was, personally, he was a very cool guy. Uh, we drove him home from Comic-Con once. He lived in L.A. and we drove him home. He's a super sweet guy. But once he got on his, you know, his pedestal, he was a crazy person. I mean, as far as, you know, like, passion. You kids don't talk and you're a bunch of nerds. You know, 
So anyway, that's all it was really. And Crumb just wanted the attention, you know, and as we all do. But uh, he decided to, I mean, he could have hurt himself. I remember looking at him going, dude, you know, he's all skinny and stuff. He could have busted his neck or something. I don't know. But anyway, that's what happened there. It's, I'm just telling you the, the clean, nice version. I, I don't think it went on for a while. Palmer Vides did a really good job standing up to burn. All right. I, I thought I tell him all the time, every time I see him, you know, hey, you did great. He has to remember. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. This video is brought to you by the books that we make. Coming out in November, I have Street Angel, Princess of Poverty from Image Comics. This collects all of the Street Angel comics that are not in Street Angel, Deadly Scroll Alive, also available from Image Comics. I've also been self-publishing. True Crime Funnies you can buy on my website, jimrug.com. You can also get these from my Patreon, patreon.com slash jimrug, where you can find 1986 and BW zines. As Hulk Grand Design is my contribution to the Grand Design series from Marvel Comics. These are going out of print, so pick this up if your comic shop still has one and you haven't added it to your shelf yet. Ed's latest, Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus. 500 plus pages of all the Hip Hop Family Tree comics, plus 140 bonus pages. X-Men Grand Design collects Ed's three X-Men Grand Design volumes in one easy-to-find trade paperback because several of those original volumes are out of print. And Red Room, Anti-Social Network and Trigger Warnings, both available now with a third volume, Crypto Killers, coming in January. And now back to our video. Yeah, that's all. Uh, the other one, uh, my greatest, our greatest moment in, in comics, getting into comics, we knew we were there. We went to a local con in LA and, uh, you know, we. I don't know if we have the comic yet. We have copies of it, I think, maybe. Uh, and we're that, this might be that that con where we actually had comics of our family, and uh, we we were looking. Oh right, no no no, we're gonna give the artwork to Gary. I think we had to find Gary. I can't remember. So anyway, get in the elevator. This tall guy with his wife comes in, and we're just saying we're nerds. We've never been to con before. We never met anybody, and. Uh, Tall guy, but he had a, like a, a mole haircut wig, a mole haircut wig. Tall guy, and we all and we all looked at each other and goes, that, "That's that's Bob Clampett, man. One of the greatest animators ever, man." Fuck, you know? And he was standing there smiling. You know, we're standing at his, you know, and he, you know, we're looking at his mole wig and all this. And then a little guy comes in the elevator, stops, and he just waddles in, turns around, and then we go, "Wait a minute, that's." And then uh, you could hear Bob Clampett go, "Hey, Joe, how you doing?" And he turns on and it's Joe Schuster. He's got glasses this thick, you know, and he just goes, Hey, Bob, when do we eat? <laughs> he just goes, Oh, me and the missus, we're going to go uh, have some lunch right now. Come join us. It was the cutest thing we ever saw because once the elevator opened, they all walked in. It was super tall, uh, you know, Bob Clampett, his wife, and a little Joe Schuster just waddling next to him. And he was talking to him. We were just like, Whoa, I guess cons are like this, huh? And we had to ask, but we didn't know what Gary looked like, so we had to ask Harvey Kurtzman to uh, find him for us. <laughs> we were that stupid. We were like, uh, Mr. Kurtzman, could you tell us where Gary Groff is? He goes, oh, yeah, I'm walking, you know, I'm walking up here. I'll, I'll show you. <laughs> you know, that was the goo our goofy entrance to comics. And I'm like, and then seeing Kirby just standing around and not talking to him because we were so nervous. You know, those are the early days. But we knew we were in there if we these guys were around. That was magic to us. Like, oh, these guys are around. These guys are walking the earth. I had to have uh, uh, my wife have Carl Barks sign comics because I was too shy. I was too nervous. You know, it was it was weird. That, and that was the same year. That was a different con. And that, that, that different con was the same year. And that Tezuka, you know, so there was it was like happening that these guys were alive. 
<laughs> I hate to say it, they're all gone, but uh, we just, you know, fell into it. So we just felt we were kind of part of it as fans, but we had a comic, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. I don't know. Tezuka is, um, I think, w- would that have been like early, early 80s, whenever he was there? Like 83, 84? 84, I think it was. I think that was a year, I think. I think. One of the things I was curious about is, um, is manga as an influence on you. What, what did you know of Tezuka's work at that point? Like, was it around? I didn't, I didn't see manga till later, uh, like in books, uh, collections of the history of comics, and they'd have a throw in a few pages of Japanese comics. But where I got into manga, the style of art was watching Astro Boy as a kid. Now I'm talking about, you guys weren't even a wink in the eye, you know, a bl- no blink, you know, it, it, we were little kids. And Astro Boy was on, and since he was a boy and he looked like a puppet doll, we loved him. And he had superpowers and all this stuff. We liked him, the robot, and I just loved the artwork. So we gravitated toward that. And they, I guess in the mid 60s, they took all the violence out of the kids' shows. You couldn't watch those anymore. But they brought back Gigantor on uh, UHF, you know, what was the. Anyway, uh, on UHF, we started watching Gigantor, which we really liked. You know, but it was the style of art. I just loved the black and white and, and the roundness of robots. And just, you know, they would make a robot and then give him a black collar. And that was it. The rest was, you know, flesh colored or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but it just, it was just amazing. We just liked it, you know. And then we gravitated toward, because there was these two styles. There was the Tezuka style and there was the Eighth Man style. I don't know what you call it, where it's like more realistic, more like the girls have giant eyes and, you know, the, but not so cartoony a little bit. Uh, you know, Speed Racer style, you know, where it wasn't as, as round like Fleischer Brothers, it was just sort of half realistic. Then um, we went just watched all those shows. By the time Speed Racer came came around, I, I wasn't crazy about it because I didn't like that style they moved toward, where, where the anime, toward, I liked the Tezuka style. So I just liked it. And since we're doing black and white, you just, you know, you use it. You're like, oh, okay, just put, put a black collar on it and do this, make the robots round. And, you know, it was just... Because I liked it, and uh, I didn't see manga normally till uh, uh, the '80s, till we were doing Level Rocket. You know, till I saw a lot of it. You know, and then I was like, oh, okay, it's cool. Do you ever hang on to any of those weird, like mimeographed fanzines that you sent away for as kids? And 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 where would you even know to uh, to to send your dollar bill to uh, to get that stuff? And well, could you it, and could you explain some of that material? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it quick. Uh, Mario was looking, they would just have ads in the comic, any comic, you know, and sometimes they would have uh, a small ad, like, and it had a superhero, and it just said, the Illustrated Comic Collector's Handbook. You'll see all the superheroes from the 40s, you know, and this classic, you know, and we're like, because we're fascinated with the 40s. We never saw anything except for reprint things or whatever, but we never saw stories or so. We just saw that Great Crandall drew Blackhawk and stuff. This is amazing. What it, you know, Lou Fine, the Black Condor, we're like, yeah, you know, but we couldn't find it. We didn't know what it was, so we'd only see it later in fanzines. But so Mario sees this ad, and I was the only one with a dollar fifty at the time, and he goes, "Man, you got a dollar fifty? This thing's only a dollar twenty-five. You want a cent for this thing?" Hmm, I was thinking about buying, you know, candy and shit. But I was like, "All right," you know. Uh, so I sent away for it. It took forever to come because it was snail mail. It was worse than it is now. And uh, we got it, and we saw how crude it was. We, saw, we didn't know about fan art, you know. We're like, and basically, the artist uh, traced. I think he traced a lot of the superhero poses, and it was, and it's like the stuff you see now, and you scratch your head, like the rainbow or Zippo, or you know, just weird microface, just weird characters. Like, 
but but for me it was just mind blowing because I that's where I go. I go to Charlton Comics. I go to the nutty stuff. I always have. Obviously, you can see, you know, in Blubber and Psychodrama uh, Illustrated, I go for the nutty, and so uh, I just love. You know, loved looking at that stuff, and then there, and then and there was an ad in that one for the first issue. So I, Mario ordered the third one, so we had them. But they always had ads for you know, Rockets Blast Comic Collector, RBCC, uh, that 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 stuff. And so Mario just, you know, uh, just bought one, you know, ordered one, and we got it. And we saw all the ads and all the, the, the reproductions of, uh, you know, of old comics. And so that's what kind of what started it. And then we just ordered. The, well, the, the fanzines that we could afford, you know. So, did you did you do uh, material in in Rockets Blast? We we interviewed Jaime some t- some time ago, and he said his first pages showed up in there. So curious, uh, where where your first pages or first illustrations might have shown up? Um, I as far as I uh, just a small 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 fanzines like one called the Fanzine, and that's where I did the Spider Man and all the villains. And uh, it was just because the guy was super into Spider Man and Kiss, you know, he was super into Kiss. <laughs> we thought that was funny, so we kind of corresponded with the guy and you know and, and did some stuff. But I just did with do uh, Spotillos. Then I and then I ventured. I went. I sent Spotillos to the Buyer's Guide and to the Comics Journal. And just Spotillos, you know. And I, I didn't know what to do, so I would do superheroes like for the Eighth Man, you know, like what I was talking about earlier. Just oddball stuff. But we're ahead of our time, and nobody knew what they what those characters were or didn't care. You know, they're like, well, where's, you know, where's Spidey by, you know, Jerry Conway, like you mentioned once. Uh, it, uh, I don't know, it just wasn't, uh, it was just sort of fanzine stuff we sent. And then we'd get criticized for this. Like, I drew a, a great thing, well, great for me, <laughs> a Commando Cody with a ray gun, and he had a helmet and a rocket pack and all that stuff, you know, old Columbia serials. And the guy just, you know, he was, he was writing a science fiction column in the, the bar's guy, and he just goes, well, we don't, do this shit you know we're serious we're science fiction this is just kid shit from the old days and i go but that's the, the stuff i want that's the stuff i like you know i like superman meets lucy on the lucille ball show you know i like that stuff but the science fiction fans are serious they didn't want anything to do with it so i got a lot of criticism for drawing robots and stuff that were retro you know and i and since i wasn't wasn't making comics regularly yet I put super detail in everything, so I—it's a lot of my super detailed art. It's not even in the, the like the sketchbooks we put out and stuff. <laughs> they were just like, "Well, that's a nice robot, I think." You know, things like that. And I thought, well, and then you find out the guy's fifteen. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I thought these were old grizzled guys who liked old comics. No, these are kids, and that kind of inspired me. I go, well, these kids are doing it. You know, these kids want want to know about comics. They want to do stuff, but I would ignore their taste. I would just know that they're into it, you know, and I, I was that was good enough for me. So anyway, that's that's kind of how it started. It, it, we just fell into it because we're fans and we just wanted to see what is the, the weird history of comics, and we weren't disappointed because it got weirder and weirder the early earlier you went, you know. Gilbert, whenever you do the uh, the Love and Rockets, the self published version, was there like were you trading comics through the mail like were you buying fanzines through the mail at that point or you know was there some kind of community around the idea of like i'm going to self-publish you know you had mentioned dave sim and ElfQuest, but was there something like mail trading like fanzines going on at that point if there was like we didn't know about stuff because when we started meeting people they would talk about stuff like that well if you come if you do this and you do this we'll do this for you and you'll do this for us i was like what are you talking about 
You know, I we're doing Love and Rockets because we don't like what you do. <laughs> 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 we don't like that that. Uh, wanting, you know, being influenced by the mainstream and making new comics, uh, fan comics or fanzines from the mainstream. And I, I just wasn't into it. I like the history. You know, I like the whacked out history, you know, of, of comics. And I don't know. It, what was the question? Uh, I just wondered if there was like a community of people that were self-publishing whenever you started self-publishing. There, there, there were, but we were all so different. And since we, I mean, I came from the punk scene, we were impatient. We didn't want to deal with fanish type, you know, oh, this is a great funny animal, robots, things like that, you know. This is before the Ninja Turtles, speaking of showing us, you know, <laughs> the, the, before the Ninja Turtles, there was small little comics like that. That's why Ninja Turtles didn't surprise me when it came out. Of course, it was surprising when it became such a hit, but, it, you know, I, I, it was normal. You know, when uh, Kevin Eastman gave his copies of the first issues, you know, he was, he was all excited. Like, yeah, yeah, we're publishing comics, too. So, yeah, okay, great. You know, and we looked at it and go, that's well drawn and stuff. But then you just put stuff away. You know, you put it aside. Um, that, so that's a fascinating thing too, because that's two years yeah, after yeah. you guys. Like, like that's that's why we're 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 talking about that that period because it's it's you guys are so peerless at, at that time, and there's nobody doing stuff like you. Uh, I guess maybe Gary Gary Panter comes to mind. He's he's always associated with that like West Coast like Slash Magazine. Uh, kind of aesthetic. Were you aware of his work uh, when oh, you guys yeah. were busy? Yeah, during the punk scene uh, in LA, the the, the main uh, fanzine was called Slash. And it was a tabloid size, and they, they published Jimbo. That was the first uh, Gary Panner comics published. So we'd see it, and we just thought it was really funny because it was during the, the punk days where anything was just nuttier the better. And but seeing punk in comics was like, how do you do that? You know, how, how do you? So Hymet was wise by just making it normal people as punks, you know, and doing that. But whereas Gary Panner was, you know, he's, he's it's abstract and wacky and nutty and crude, and he had his character Jimbo just being that was just his generic punk character, and he's put him in situations like, you know, he opens a is it, he opens a bottle of coke and he cuts his thumb, and that's a little story, you know. Uh, so yeah, oh yeah, Gary Panner was like him and uh, Raymond Pettibone because he was doing Black Flag Flyers. So the guys were around, but. Uh, you know, it, it just—it was just a slow crawl to to change things. It wasn't until the uh, Klaus and those guys showed up and started showing up, and Burns, and of course Raw Magazine, and uh, you know, all that stuff. All those guys started Woodring later on, and, and all these people, all these top-notch, really high-end cartoonists started coming out. They couldn't—we couldn't be ignored anymore. And that's what how that happened in the mid '80s. It was like, kaboom, let's go, you know. And the mainstream, oh boy. I heard stories about them. They're flipping out. Like there, there was one time I, somebody told me I was a colorist, I think, at DC, and just said, "Oh yeah, when the new issue of Love and Rockets used to come in, everybody'd stop working, <laughs> and, the, and the brass would get pissed off. Like, why are you reading this comic instead of doing your work? And why this comic? You know, too fucking bad. <laughs> you couldn't see it. Oh, I've been told by two. I won't say which which publisher, uh, vice president of DC or publisher, you know, said, "Oh, we loved your comics, but we would never print them." You know, they would tell us shit like that. I'm like, "F you," you know. We'll keep. We'll just do it ourselves, and we did. You don't want to name names on on that one, though, man. Like, no, uh, <laughs> no, I fuck with you. But <laughs> no. what, what did you think about guys like you know who were established when you guys came into into the game? You do, you do your thing with diligence for years and years. You start to get your little shine. And then you get like your Kyle Bakers uh, kind of doing their unique 
kind of comics or even like a Bill Sienkiewicz, like straight toasters. Uh, did, did you have any sense of any of that material and what did you think about it? Uh, well, I thought it was, I thought it was their kind of stuff. Cause I wasn't really following that, their type of stuff. I don't know. I just wasn't into it so much because I think I was just so involved with the characterizations in Palomar and Hein was with his, his characters that I didn't really relate to it anymore. I started moving away from it because I was getting so much in my own world, you know, <laughs> You know, it's the, the blessings of the narcissist, you know. I just I just wanted to do that. So I, I was impressed by them, but I didn't care to read them. You know, I didn't care to, like, read the further adventures or whatever it was. Uh, but I, I, I appreciated it. I admired it. But it was that it was that different group. There's that weird group in the middle where it's Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman and those guys. And then there's the other group that's us and Dan Klaus and Peter Bag and Crom. And then there's the mainstream where it's just, you know, I don't know, whoever's around. But yeah, so there's all these little pockets of like who are the coolest comics, you know. And every once in a while, you'd hear the other group saying like, "Yeah, well, we're the real stuff. They're just, you know, they won't be around." <laughs> and you and you guys were pretty punk rock about sort of like uh, there were some quotes about Watchmen. Like, yeah, we read Watchmen. Like, it's <laughs> do you remember what's the quote? Do you remember the quote? I, I don't remember it. It was probably something stupid because I was arrogant. Um, <laughs> I, the thing, the only problem with Watchmen, and I'll say this now, and even then, was that I'm not, I don't care about reconstruct or deconstructing superheroes. I like superheroes. I'll pick up uh, um, uh, Fantasy Four number forty-nine, and I'll enjoy that. And then to read something about, well, this is really stupid. These characters don't get along, and they're wearing underwear, and this. Shut, shut up. You know, <laughs> like I said, I like the '40s stuff. I love the Justice Society's costumes. They're my favorite costumes because they're all niche, mismatched and kind of like colored like your jacket, you know? Right. And uh, I just, no, I just loved it though. I just thought, and, and people call it, oh, you like that flash? He's got that stupid helmet and this, and I go, but that's cool. It's Mercury's helmet. It's so naive. It was for children. It's, it just opens up children's imagination. And, and this is what happens to, to fan stuff, like science fiction and stuff. They start to close it up and it has to be like, oh, it's all about what you can't do. And science fiction and even comics, it's about what you can do. Science fiction is about what you can do. That's that's what you have to come up with a good reason for something to happen. Where they're always like, well, no, you can't have a black Vulcan. Oh no, you can't have this. You can't have that. Oh, that's you know, Spidey can't fight this character because this is going on in the universe and stuff. And I just started that. They just started to bore me, bore me, you know, because it was no longer Kirby and Ditko. Because I'm I'm stuck on that Kirby, Ditko, and Stanley. I'm stuck there, you know, those three guys, you know. Uh, so anyway, I don't know. I'm probably going off on a tangent again. But, it's a conversation. Uh, no, so yeah, I watched watching. I no, I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was well done. It just bothered me that like, well, I don't. I'm not that into deconstructing superheroes. And the fact that he lifted the entire plot from an Outer Limits episode, which I is my favorite Outer Limits episode. I went, you gotta come up with some ideas, dude. You know that that was all it was. It, it, so really, it's a success. It should be good, good. But I, I'm just not. Well, Al Alan Moore agreed with you, by the way. Like, like he reiterated oh, yeah. what what you said. He's like. I agree with them, and it was. It, I think it's his famous, like the the cover feature TCJ where it's the big Alan Moore interview. I think he talks about it in there. He's like, he's like, the bros are right, you know, because it's the hyperbole of everybody else who was pumping it up. Do you respond to like the aesthetic part of? We'll say Watchmen since we're talking about it, but I would say contemporary superhero comics in general. You know, like a more detailed, more labored style. Do you respond to that at all? No, I don't look at mainstream at all, except except uh, at a glance, and I will be impressed. I can't believe how well these kids can draw. 
you know, they go, well, this guy came from Argentina and he's like 12 and he can, and then they draw fucking great. Two years later, they're gone. All the great artists, all the ones that you think are, you know, it's just because nothing lasts anymore. It just, it, you can't. It, we luckily we started in you know 1982, so we were able to stick to it. Whereas they come, you come up now to last. And a lot of people don't care to last. They get burned out. They go, they want another a different job, you know, whatever. And I go, well, the reason we stuck to the rock is because we believed in it. We believed in what we could put in it, and that's what keeps us there. If we didn't believe in it, I would have given it up a long time ago. Yeah. It probably helps that, that you're creating the whole thing. You know, you, you can well, make stories and characters that you're interested in as opposed to, here's the script, draw it. This is a little side note on that. I was at a, at a panel at Comic-Con, and it was a Peanuts panel, panographics. And I was sitting next to uh, Charles Shaw's widow, widow, Jeannie. And she's a really, really sweet woman. And somebody in the audience just stood up and goes, well, you know, yeah, Peanuts is great, you know, Charles Shaw's, but Charles Shaw's and, and, and Disney are probably the greatest creators of, and we just went. Disney, uh, the best of Disney, is a bunch of people. You know, it's got the name, but it's a bunch of people. All these people who made those early cartoons and early comics, those are real good fucking people doing that stuff. And she just goes, Charles did it himself. They go, that's right. Charles Charles did it all himself the whole time. Everybody's just like, really? You didn't? Yeah. I don't know. I like to tell that story because she she was she, she was happy when I said that. She, <laughs> she was ready. Yeah. She was like, you know. Every every now and then, man, you you do that little dalliance with uh, DC Comics or something, man. Shelley Bond will get you on the hook for something and uh, exp mm -hmm. explain to uh, you know the audience is pretty hip, but ex explain to the audience what it's like to do something uh, with with a editor at DC on mm -hmm. the, one of their superhero type titles compared to you know doing your own thing. Well, uh, with Shelly, it was with Vertigo mostly, except for, yeah, it was with Vertigo. And so it was more in indie type stuff, even though it's still DC. It was, it, it, so I could work with her on that. You know, we disagreed on a lot of stuff, but we, I could work with her on that. Yeah. Uh, I did one, I might have done a couple of superhero things. I did Birds of Prey, I wrote it. And I, I'm just completely embarrassed by it because I, it just, it, the truth came home to me. I can't just jump over and write superhero comics. I thought I could. I thought, well, that's easy. You just no. Those guys, those folks that, that do that stuff, uh, they work hard to get that shit because they have to keep coming up. You know, monthly comics, bang, 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 bang. They got to keep going. So I, I, I learned uh, to appreciate that in, in, in their work. And so I, I worked with Shelley, and it was okay. Birds of Prey was hard because I had to come up with, well, you know, I, it was it's right. It's what Birds of Prey was a uh, black canary. That girl in a wheelchair, she's Oracle, and you know, that kind of stuff. So, I had to deal with that. And I thought, well, does any of them have a boyfriend? They go, well, Dick Grayson dates so and so. Oh, great, I get to use Robin. Yay, yay. They go, no, you can't use Robin. <laughs> I get to use Nightwing. No, you can't use Nightwing. And I went, it goes because he's in another universe right now. Oh. <laughs> I was like, okay. So, I got to use Dick Grayson, which was, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> But yeah, things like that, and uh, I, I, and at the end, by the end, I was so tired of it. It was supposed to be, I just, it just became, what are these super, what are non-powered superheroes doing in superhero comics these days? It's such an epic world they live in now. So that was just my little question, and so that's why I brought in Metamorpho, and they flipped out. Like, why did you bring Metamorpho? I go, he's in your fucking universe, you know. Uh, but not in that comic. 
So uh, metamorphosis in the last couple of issues. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'll never get a job again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the, the beauty is you're a comic maker rather than just like a comic writer. It's, it's like the people that just do that one discipline, I mean, they need that system. I, you know what? That's what I learned. And that's actually my main disappointment in my entire career is I wasn't able to switch over and just do a good mainstream comic, you know, at least for a while or something. Because to tell the truth, you know, we uh, needed to work. You know, that's why I did all this advertising and stuff. I can't do that stuff. They don't ask me to do that stuff. So I have to do whole comics, whole series and shit. So that's why I, I kind of did that kind of stuff. So it's pretty, it's pretty busy. Yeah, you have a stretch where you work with all kinds of different publishers, um, Drawn and Quarterly, Dark Horse. Any comparisons in terms of publishers? Like, you know, why why go there and why not stay with any of them? Was... That, that was actually pretty scary stuff because it's like right when I hook up with uh, Fantagraphics myself in like 2012, then all my favorite Fantagraphics guys, they jump ship and they're, they're running off to Canada. And you got Marble Season and there's Death Ray and then Chris Ware's publishing his own stuff. I'm like, what what is happening here? Uh, it depends. Like, uh, like it could be that sometimes because, like, when you finish a major project, let's say a, a company like Fantagraphics, now they gotta they gotta put it together. It takes a long time for it to get out there, just because you have to put it together and there's smoke up. Um, it just uh, it was like, well, I gotta do another project. I, I work for, I do this for a living. So you do, you go to different companies. That's why you jump from company to company. Really, is to, if it's gonna work. I mean, I wouldn't go to draw in quarterly or dark horse if I thought, oh, I'm doomed, you know, I got to do this. No, no, I knew I can make it work. Because I worked with Diana Schutz in Dark Horse, which is great, you know, and like the stuff in uh, DC with Shelley. Uh, Drawn in quarterly, it was just it was Tom Devlin and, uh, you know, it was, you know, it was fine, you know. Uh, th they have different schedules. They're a little more tight on schedules uh, compared to Fanographics. Fanographics just gave up because when Kim Tam Thompson was around, he and Gary were always like fighting for, for deadlines and nobody could make them. So they just gave up, you know. Whereas John and Corley, since I was new there, they, they were serious about the deadlines. And I, I get it, you know. So when you're going to these other companies, you're you're pitching a project. It's not like in my head, I'm picturing you're just making your next story, and then you know the publisher says yes. But are you actually uh -huh. pitching like here's my proposal, and they say, yeah, we'll do that? Well, sort of. Yeah, it depends. I would only talk talk about it mostly. Uh, mostly to like Shelley or, or uh, say um, like Dana Schutz or somebody who who already got me or understood me, and they were all uh, with Diana. She was looking for a different kind of book for me uh, that I was than I was doing for. So she allowed me to do a couple of stupid comics that, <laughs> that I did just because I had the material ready. You know, I like oh that's another thing. You wonder like why did he do this comic or why did he do Fatima or why did he do you know because I was just I had the material ready. The Fatima story was actually a Fritz book. Well, I needed it for a different company, so I just changed the characters. Yeah. So anyway, there's that that happens a lot, but uh, I don't know, you know. So that's that's great. I'm curious about your writing because you're so prolific. Are you constant? Like, do you? What's your? Do you have a schedule for writing? Like, do you have a process that you sort of typically work? from or are you just writing down ideas when you have them and then eventually you go oh, that's the whole story how does that yeah. work uh lately uh since i've been and it's been so so many years and i heard this about other older cartoonists is they'll just start drawing on the page and start thinking of the story you know like carl barks he didn't even pencil after a while 
I barely, he would just, and then, because he, he drew the ducks so much, he just barely did it. Uh, and same with, uh, with, with me, it's the writing. It's like, okay, right now, I'm doing a, a half Palomar story, half modern you know, type thing. And I realize I haven't used these characters in a long time. That'll be my reason to do it. Really, that's it. Like, I'll do it because of that. And so I'll uh, throw that in. But uh, uh, I don't have a story, but I have the characters. So that's what happens to me now. I have characters, and they're all standing there looking at each other, but they're not saying anything because I don't know what they're saying. So I don't ink the expressions yet. you know. And then, and then I start to write it. And it starts to come together, and I start changing things here and there. So I basically write it as I'm just doodle, basically doodling on a page or just laying out pages. Uh, I always give a young uh, a cartoonist the advice of if you're going to use pencil and a straight edge and an eraser uh, to uh, rule your borders, and especially the out, outside border. If you, if you don't know what your panels are going to look like yet, wait. But rule your borders and pencil. Rule your borders. Get your pages out. Do that. And if you know if you're going to do a static type story, six panel grid, eight panel grid, nine panel grid, do it. Just do it right away. Don't ink it. Just pencil, pencil. Because there's nothing worse than having a great idea and running to the drawing board and the paper's blank. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of the steam gets goes away when you're just ruling borders and shit. That's not the right line. Fight out. You know, or you know, start over. You know, that kind of stuff. I try to avoid that. So I try to tell young cartoonists who are still using pencil and a straight edge rule your borders before you get get to the page we were yeah. looking we were looking at uh julio's day uh, a couple weeks back and uh just such a magnificent comic and there's so much editing that's required to, to make a comic like that work i imagine you know mm -hmm. like you got these set number of characters you got a hundred years of time like uh, which moments do you choose how does how, how did you approach something like that was there was there a lot of back-end work to get that comic to 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 work well, all I can think of is the mistakes, and they're glaring to me. Uh, it was basically originally uh, it's going to be a guy's life for a hundred years. It was a gimmick, you know. I thought, okay, hundred pages, hundred years, let's do it. It turned out that I couldn't do a year <laughs> on each page. So if you really look close, it's not. It's, right. It's there's added pages. There's this and that, and that. And I didn't think far enough to make the characters look different enough. That's the main problem for me. That, you, you think so? Because I, I, that's very yeah. self-imposed. It was very clear to us in the read. I yeah, uh, but I had to. But once I did that, and they looked the way they did, I had to really work on the writing to make it clear. They couldn't do it with the drawing. For me, for me, I had to make it clear who this is. Who that? Like Uncle Juan, the bad guy. Well, he, I just should have gave him a beard. That's all. I gave him a beard, and then uh, the the uh, the mother and the daughter at, at one point look exactly the same. Well, one of them should have just had a bunch of freckles. You know, literally things like that I've done over the years, just at the last moment, you realize, oh, this person looks too much like that. They're not going to know who this is. Uh, and so I'll just put, oh, I'll put some scars on their face, or I'll put a goatee or, or freckles, or, 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 I'll light, or I'll take out the dark eyes and make them blue or something. You know, things like that just to make sure they look different. So that that is a little disappointing. And the third thing was uh, I didn't really make clear what year it was. You know, I didn't put dates. I didn't do captions, you know, like, you know, late, early 60s, late 70s, early. You know, I didn't do that. Even though that's annoying, it helps. <laughs> oh, you did not need that. It didn't because matter in the reading. Really? You know what you had is the timing device was uh, was wars. the wars that that the uh, that right. the Florence Nightingale type chick, uh, you know, she's mm -hmm. going off to World War II and going off to Vietnam and going off to Korea and all, all of that. Like, that, that's that's your time device, man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. That was, 
that was my coolest uh, that it had to happen because I made her such a good character. She would just pay her way to go to wars and nurse people. That's what she wanted to do. Her last war was, you know, there's a storm. She drinks a Diet Coke and dies. You know, I heard some stories about that. Like the desert heat was poisoning the sodas. <laughs> this is what I heard. I don't know the truth. But I thought, well, that's a good way for her, irony for her to, you know, leave our story, you know. So, so with something like that, you know, she, she is a tangential side character. Mm-hmm. Do you work that out at the start? Do you know what her arc is going to be? You know, uh, uh, when, her- when, did, when did you do this out? Was it over like 10 issues? It was over to, you know, it started out like the full, you know, my main story, but I just started getting, this is what always happens to me. I start getting ideas for other other things. And this is why I started doing extra comics because they just don't fit. I won't be able to fit fit it in here. I have to finish this. So Julio's there, if you'll notice, uh, it, like maybe chapter five or something like that is like one page in Love and Rockets, you know, and Love and Rockets is not a monthly comic. So you got to wait, you know, so I was happy. I, I learned my lesson. I thought, don't, don't do it that way. So, yeah, it was it was it was just a, a gimmick in the hundred years thing. But I just wanted I just wanted to have graphic novels. That was the time where like you, know, you showed your chops if you had a graphic novel. Now I don't believe in graphic novels. I don't. I don't. Uh, I mean, it's fine. I mean, when you do them all at once, you can't have all your best ideas all at once. They come at the end, or when you're rereading it. You know, you go, oh, well, I'm gonna throw these pages out. You know, and, and redo them or rewrite the dialogue or something. You know, there's just things that happen. You know, so I didn't like doing uh, those early Fritz books because uh, like Troublemakers took three years. That should just take me a year, but it took me three years. Uh, Maria M, I did it twice, remember? I, it came out and, and I just couldn't get to the second part. So it was like, uh, and then I finally did it. They said, uh, the second part's not going to work. We have to reprint the first one and add the second to it. And I go, well, oh, that's fine. That's fine. You know, so now I have this. Uh, purposeless Maria M, where, you know, and then there's a the, the, the good one, you know, the second one. Uh, so anyway, that you know, stuff, I'm just too busy, crazy, and I don't, I don't see what's ahead of me till it hits me in the face, you know. That, well, okay, I better change that. Yeah. We were just, um, I think it was Neil Gaiman. Uh, we were we were listening to some of his ideas on writing, and he was talking about, you know, if you don't know what's coming next then your reader doesn't know either, uh, mm. as opposed to maybe if you plan everything out and have a tight outline, uh, you know, it's a very different creative experience. Do you keep notes as you're working on like these multiple stories at once? Like you mentioned earlier about Palomar and having such a large cast. Mm-hmm. Are you sort of noting them somewhere so that you can keep straight, like who's doing what and when and where are they? Um sometimes if it's if it's a, a, a part of the story that i've really got to work out and, and reuse a character or leave a character out sometimes i have to look closely at it but most of the time i uh i look at the uh, there's that book that came out final was put out and it had the our, our character lists on it and see what happened to it that's where i got i get that's my reference you know, I'll go, <laughs> is this guy still alive i don't remember are they married or does he have a big nose or a little nose or you know, I really, I have to look, and some of them are just, they, they're vague. But, uh, information, it doesn't say if he's dead or not, so I'll use them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just stuff like that. I know, yeah, because I can't, I can't remember all those characters, uh, where they were last. I know who the characters are. I just, I go, what have they done? Have they already done this? And I have to look back, and I go, I've already written this story. Or things in the story that, you know, I'm thinking about doing, and I go, oh, I already did that. So, yeah. I was at, I was at the, uh, the Fanta offices. 
uh, years ago, like when Blubber was just starting up, and they just got like a FedEx from you for like Blubber number three. And uh, with this FedEx, well, it was the original artwork, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, snuck in there with the permission and stuff. And I'm like checking out Gilbert's artwork and it's all on the page, man. It's, it's all on the page. Might even like, you know, paste up a balloon or something like that. Like it's all practical. So you're sending this stuff through FedEx and there is like a law of averages, you know, and you've been in this game quite a while. Uh, do you? have any uh, scary stories about uh, you know sending the work through the mail we only lost something once when we were doing calendars and somehow it just didn't get to us or them i can't remember which it was uh and they just go it, it's gone you know nobody nobody knew where it was and you know fedex was tracking it down and this and that so we had to redo some of those pages luckily we made good photocopies so we did some of them and then like the next day it came in the mail you know so i was like oh so that you know but that was the only time. I don't normally do that now, but... You scan stuff now yourself? Yeah, yeah, we scan. Well, my daughter scans it for me because I'm old. Right. And so, Blubber, she, you know, I send it in the mail because it's like... It's yeah, just, she was quite young. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to think, imagine her seeing that stuff. <laughs> oh, just don't look at it. She goes, I have to look at it. So, <laughs> so that was it. And then uh, even a couple of uh, psychodrama illustrators were a little, too, a little rough now. So I, I will send up only if I chicken out. But I, normally I don't want to. I, I don't want to. <laughs> I got to learn how to scan. That's all. People are looking for a Birdland reprint, man. You're going to have the girl <laughs> scanning those pages? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. They, they, they're already done. I, I don't need to add anything or change anything to, to bring, besides all the pages are sold. That is that is a question that came in though uh from from our audience they they they're looking you know those co those arrows comics they have their niche and they have their audience and those comics are expensive so uh something like birdland is that something you got out of your system or can we get a new version of that at some point well there'll be a uh, there'll, there'll be a deluxe edition and i think they're going to add a garden of the flesh to it which i'm not sure that that'll fit because it's it's a little color thing, you know. So I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, I mean, if they want to, people ask me all the time for, for it. I go, why? It's just gross, you know. It's just, I didn't like my. I was overdoing everything with, with the art because I did it at the same time as Love and Rockets X, and Love and Rockets X was like a little more was so restrictive in, in, in nine pound grid, and I was doing this whole epic thing with you know, this nine pound grid, and it just burned me out, and I just. Was, you know, I'd look at comics or read the comics journal and just go, I fucking hate comics. And I saw, you know, just did it for that. You know, that's the sad thing. But there was a period with the, the comics journal. Sorry, Gary. Uh, that where it was just like so depressing after you read it that I would just run to Alter Ego when it was still good and just read about 40s artists and things like that. And I go, oh, so when I look at the comics journal, I hate comics. When I look at Alter Ego, I like comics. Something's up here. <laughs> yeah. But that was then. then. Then things changed. But I remember thinking that at the time. Wow. I feel like you have more sex in your comics than almost any mainstream comics I can think of. And, and by mainstream, I mean not pornography. I, I don't mean like Marvel DC. Was that something that was like you were conscious of early on? Was it just something that came natural? Is like you're doing comics with adult characters, so that's part of the world. You know, I don't mean it in a salacious way, but it's something that I think separates your work from almost everyone else who does comics that are for mature audiences or, you know, mm -hmm. 
adult's such a weird word uh, yeah, in this context but i mean like comics that an adult can read and it's it feels like these characters are real characters that you can understand and relate to was that something that you were conscious of like putting into the work or hesitant to put into the work uh I, well you know i grew up uh in the 60s and so mario you know looking at underground comics i just oh. discovered underground comics and you know, it was all sex so i thought well just no you know they're doing this they're not getting arrested i mean it's like it's normal i guess for a certain group of people reading these i just thought it was okay you know i just thought be good this is fun and then I, I started to see a lot of European uh, reprints, a lot of European collections. And there was all kinds of nudity and sex in them. And I thought, well, that's, why not? You know, and uh, like Heavy Metal Magazine was reprinting that stuff, a little bit of sex in there. So I just thought, well, that, that's the next thing. I just, I'll just have sex in my comics. And it'll, it, it, I, I, I did think about it, well, it'll make it unique because they're not going to do this in Spider-Man. They're not going to do this in the mainstream. So I'll just do this here. And then even my peers, like Klaus and Bag and those guys, they weren't, going to do sex comics you know a little bit you know jokey but not you know and uh i just just started doing it and uh, i like to be defiant you know people getting mad why are you doing that you know why, why don't you do a story about boy scouts you know I'm like, well that's sex too but <laughs> you know uh, uh anyway yeah i just did it because i just I'm just, I'm just a crazy person i guess i just like uh not shocking people but like yeah here we go you know yeah all right you know what I, I didn't even think about this for for the uh purpose of the having the conversation it wasn't at the front of my mind but we're, we're there now and uh, you know not too long ago there was like that bullshit w with a uh, one of your comics getting taken out of like a lib a library or something people oh, people yeah. yeah can you can you tell the people what that is and and how does something like that make you feel because it's it's pretty it's pretty salacious stuff that they were like throwing your way well, I just saw it as, as a, a, a mistake. Okay, first of all, I think the kid was for, uh, seventh or eighth grade, I think. So I'm thinking right away, and then his mom freaked out, and that's so how the whole thing started. And I'm thinking like, well, why, was this, why is my, my comics in middle school library? I go, why is it there? This is for adults. I've, been, I've said it from the beginning. My comics are for adults. The people just don't they see comics. They just, just don't, you know? And I, and I emphasize it even more now, you know, with the comics I'm doing now. All my comics for adults, even if it's a story about a little kid, it's completely innocent. It's in that realm of my comics. And uh, I can't believe I said realm. I got to say realm. All right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and then there was a big freak out, and then she made a big stink about it. But she brought up stuff like what they usually do, and, oh, this promoting child abuse and all this stuff, which... And I just said, it's fiction, it's fucked up, yes, but why is your, you know, your kid really getting old of this? You know, that, that was my, uh, my, my response. I don't, I don't, like I said, I don't take it insults, because they're not insults, they're ignorant, so I don't, I don't care. So it doesn't affect you on, 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 like it didn't ruin your day or anything like that? No, I get annoyed, but you know, when I, when I get annoyed, I, I fight. I draw more comics. I do more. You know what I mean? I, I've learned to channel those things into like, well, I'm just see the next comic. You know? <laughs> Real Johnny Ryan attitude, you know? <laughs> That's good. Gilbert, do you collect comics today? You know, like like uh, I was I was preparing for this and I looked at in the studio and I thought you had a section in there and you don't. And I'm like, wait a minute. Let's. What comics are you into or what movies or what 
whatever. Are you a collector of anything? I, well, I was up until I, I finished collecting things, really. I mean, uh, of my interests, you know. Since Fantagraphics publishes half the stuff I want to, you know, uh, I want to see, you know, I, I call them up and send me those books, you know, that kind of thing, you know, like those big Popeye collections and things like that. Popeye, I happen to believe, is the funniest laugh-out-loud comic strip ever. Uh, I would read those to my daughter, and I, when she was little, I, I couldn't I couldn't get through it because I was laughing all the time. It's just so good, so wonderful. Uh, but no, no, I just collected most of my comics. Now, uh, what if I see a nice collection? I think it was a paperback or hardcover. Now, the reason I consider that now is because my shelves are just like, you know, there's a sway back, you know, horse. Uh, so I got to get lighter books. So um, I don't really collect that much. I got all the, those Marvel masterworks. I have all the Fantastic Fours and Spideys that I want from those days and, you know, uh, here and there. Uh, I don't have much from the 70s. I just collected up until, like, because uh, in the 80s, uh, you know, there was the boom of reprints and stuff were coming out. And you go to cons and you could still, like, I got the entire uh, uh, run of Herbie comics, you know, which, you know, people didn't discover till the Dark Horse reprints. You know, but I knew about the comics and I, and, I, and I got them all and I could get them five bucks now, you know, and those things. And I, my favorite little Archie comics were like four bucks then. You know, I was just diligent and, uh, you know, uh, Hyman, I and Mario were diligent in collecting the comics we wanted in the series. Uh, I never uh, bought comic books like, say, a whole run of Fantastic Four, say. It would be in collections. It wouldn't be like the comics and so on. Simply for room. I don't have any room for all this stuff. So, uh so I don't really collect comics. I look at them when they send them to me. I see what's online. I see stuff. But, uh, like, there's a few reprint books I would like to see, but they're not likely to because uh, collections don't sell. You know, Name some just... names. Like, what, what would... Because I feel like everything under the sun... We got Jesse Marsh collections out yeah. there. So, like... like I uh... know. That a little... <laughs> they were pushing that. Uh, uh, there's an old comic strip by... Um, he was a ghost in Little Abner. Uh Bob Lubers, spell Lubbers, but it's Lubers, and he did a, a strip. Uh, Al, he and Al Cap, after Little Abner, did a strip called Long Sam, and it's the most beautifully drawn. It looks like Jaime drew it, you know, if, you know, and it's just a beautiful strip about a hillbilly girl. I mean, it's just it's not about anything like that, but it's just so gorgeous. Lubers is perfect. He drew the most beautiful women, uh, and naturally, you know, they're the Daisy May type, you know, because you know he, he came from Little Abner and so. But he did a lot of comics, Bob Lubbers, and super good. Uh, but uh, Long Sam is, is the collection I'd like to see. There's absolutely no readers for that because they're all dead. I'm serious. I'm 66. So everybody older than me is either too old to care or dead. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I just Long Sam, and there was an a, a Archie-type uh, comic strip about these twin girls called the Jackson Twins. And it was basically just a soap opera, these two twin girls and all this stuff. But I love the art and stories because the old comic strips, they drew you in. You know how even though it was every day, you know, and it was the same thing happening, barely moving along like a regular soap opera, you know, it, uh, it was still really enjoyable to read and had a crush on the girls a whole bit, you know. So those two, the Jackson twins and especially Long Sam, but there's no audience for them. So. Every time I talk to you, I get a couple new names that I've never heard before in, in, in comic titles and stuff. Long Sam, like, was that just in your local paper when you were growing up? How no, I uh, in the reprint books, like I said. It would just be, uh, you'd just open it up and it would just say strips from da-da-da. And it said Long Sam and it had this beautiful story of a hillbilly girl with a ponytail and talking to some, some guy, you know, some thing. 
but it was good. And I go, so what's Long Sam? You know, what I would have to ask my brother Mario, and he knew as much as I did. He goes, oh, I think it was just some script. <laughs> that was it. You know, nobody, you know, so I just was like, wow. And then I would see other, I go, how come nobody talks about this? How come? Like I said, that's why I didn't really relate to guys uh, early on in getting into comics, because they didn't care about that stuff. They didn't, hey, what about Long Sam? What's that? You know, does, is it Spider Woman? You know, they were so involved in, in mainstream that old stuff just didn't, it was a joke. You, like, you, you made fun of old stuff. And not, not me, man. I was into it. You know? Try to take my son of Vulcan comics away, let me tell you. <laughs> Which was pretty, pretty bad. What about um, like B movies and, and old TV and stuff? Is that is that a big influence? Is that something you still oh, consume? That's the uh, that's the third part. Uh, the, the first part is real life. Second part is comics. The third part is movies and TV. Yeah. Oh, and you could add rock and roll in it. Uh, it's yeah. We just watched TV show. Loved the uh, Flintstones and Twilight Zone growing up. And Leave It Beaver. And that that became informed. That stuff material would end up in our comics that we drew as kids because we had our own kid line. We'd have our superheroes. And we'd do a little bit of horror, but then we had our kid comics because we really enjoyed kid comics. We loved Harvey comics, Archie comics, you know that that stuff. Uh, Warren Kramer from Arch from uh, Harvey, fucking brilliant, you know. It will, and then who took uh, uh, Ernie Cologne, uh, He took over from him. Perfect, beautiful art, but it was dismissed by the superhero guys. Like, oh, it's kid comics, it's dumb. I go, yeah, but this guy draws better than that shitty guy that's doing, you know, Micronauts or whatever it is. You know, uh, but anyway, um, we had our own kid line, and so and we'd keep it clean like a kid line. There were sort of fake peanuts, fake art, little Archie, fake Dennis the Menace type, you know, combinations. You know, and, and that's what we did. So yeah, we were very influenced by say Leave It to Beaver, and then we'd use plots from it, or little you know, things like that. So uh, so what what does this mean? Is kid line like like a fully produced comics? No, no, you know, a comics for us is like just folded uh, a folded uh, paper of uh, you know uh, uh, typing paper, whatever you call it, uh, and 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 but the fun part was just to do the cover, you know, and the lettering, you know. Jaime's Jaime's uh, kid line was uh, our comic was called "All the Young Dudes" because he really loved the Matahupo right. song, but he just <laughs> he just called it "All the Young Dudes," and I can't remember what mine was called, but uh, anyway, I just had different ones and. Keeping it clean became harder and harder, you know, like, uh, I want to see somebody decapitated. Because <laughs> when I grew that stuff, it was the late 60s and stuff, and I got in a fan, I saw a fanzine, and it had the, uh, the two different versions of uh, Dick Briefer's Frankenstein, right? And it's got the ugly one, where he's, uh, he's mad, and, stuff, and it had the goofy one with the, the nose up here. And I, the goofy one, I go, I didn't care about the goofy one. What's this Frankenstein, Mario? I don't know. It's old comics and old days and this and that. And I was like, what the f You know, I just thought it was great. So I just, would, at school, I would just draw that Frankenstein face all the time. It's like fifth grade, I think. And then pretty soon I drew his body. And pretty soon I drew the lab behind him. Oh, just really kid stuff, really fast, you know. And I remember my teacher, she just goes, I want to, Gilbert, you're going to be famous someday. I want a drawing from you. Total Dan Pussy moment. I just drew Frankenstein. Here's this <laughs> and she says, oh, it's wonderful. And then I remember she's talking to some girls and she's holding it. I'm seeing Frankenstein. I think he's holding a head or something like that. And, uh, you know, and the girls are talking to her and I'm just looking at it going. And, and I, I just, even for that second, I had a damn pussy moment. Like, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, that, I, I forgot about that, you know, and just kept going. But I did start thinking about myself as 
this is all I could think of. I can't think of other things. This is like I was saying about writing for mainstream earlier. I couldn't think of anything. It's just a blank slate. So I was just drawing Dick Prefer. And then when I saw Dick Prefer's Frankenstein, I was delighted because it's cartoony. It's goofy and blobby and you know, sort of plastic man and, you know, just kind of. So I, I, I liked it. But, uh, yeah, I remember going like, I told the story before where uh, I'm drawing. And then those, and then those right away, those, uh, those Myron Fast books came out, those shitty reprints, the black and white reprints of 50s horror comics, but they have the super gory covers. That's those, those eerie publications. Right. Yeah, those eerie publications. And Mario brought one home, and I go, this is disgusting, because the covers were just gross in detail, and a vampire. Ah, it was just like, wow. And then I opened it up, and I didn't know that they were 50s comics that they just added blood to, some, a lot of the stories. Like, literally just blood spots. spots. <laughs> you know? And I thought, these are the sickest, naturally. I, I grow, gravitated toward them. So I started drawing comics like that for myself. You know, just gory, bloody, dismembered limbs and this and that. My dad, only time we talked about art, he came up to me. He goes, why do you draw like that? Why do you want to draw? I go, it's cool, dad, it's monsters. And he goes, why don't you draw something like a, like a forest or a lake? <laughs> Which, at the time, I'm laughing. Ah, ha, ha, you're so... No, now I'm thinking like, yeah, why didn't I? <laughs> it's good to draw a tree in a lake. It's good to do that, kids. Um, <laughs> so, so I was just like, oh, I'm into this. And he goes, oh, well, it's, this is silly. But, you know, draw something. If you want to be taken, like, like saying, if you want to be taken seriously, you know, draw something for real. Use your skills to draw something. Kind of like he nailed it. He was kind of saying, this is a crutch, making guts and gro gross stuff. If you draw something nice, you got to work on making it nice or realistic or whatever it is supposed to be. And I remember thinking that, like, well, fuck reality then. Then fuck being nice. And that's where my bad attitude came from. And then I just want to, I just want to draw crazy ass shit, you know. So. This this is this is cartoonist kayfabe. It's a, it's a pro wrestling parlance. We we're we're Pittsburgh guys. Uh, this is the Tootsmont territory, you know, nor northeast. Vince McMahon scooped us up in the seventies. You did the Adrian Adonis comic in one of the early uh, early Love and Rockets. Uh, Jaime did Woe Nelly in you know several wrestling inspired pieces throughout. Uh, which one of you guys is the is the bigger wrestling fan? And uh, and and if if you have good memories about it, I'm curious about uh, you know Mike LaBelle territory and what that might have been like uh, during your your heyday going to a studio wrestling or whatever. Well, it turned out I don't remember what started us watching it. I think it was just like on, we were turning channels or something, you know, and, and looking for a show. And I think there was uh, something going on, like wrestling, which we would normally ignore. We're just little kids. We, did, we couldn't relate to it. We didn't get, you know, because it was two out of three falls. So the matches were long. Kind so of boring. Kind of boring. Yeah, like they're sitting boring. there in a hold for 10 minutes and stuff. Yeah, you get the sleeper hold and they do the arm and stuff. I, and I have to tell my, well, I told my daughter now. I go, that's, that's a rest hold. They're just resting. Or else when they're leaning, they're on the ground, they're leaning on the, on the turnbuckle, and they're going, no, 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 that, they're resting. She goes, oh, that's interesting. I go, but they worked it out, because it works out. It, everything works out. They go, these guys are really good, and they're great in the locker room. You know, I was like, whoa. So basically, <clears throat> we just saw some guy, and one guy was just acting goofy, and we thought that was funny. And we talked to their neighborhood kids, hey, did you see wrestling? Go, yeah, we watch it all the time. And so we started watching it. And Jaime, I didn't know this about Jaime. Jaime's very quiet. He just basically, it blew his mind. Wrestling blew his mind. My, I'm, I liked it, but it blew his mind. And then when the women came out, you know, like Moolah, and, and you know, they'd have a novelty act, and Moolah and somebody, 
he was like, boom, he was there, man. We were just more like, ah, this is funny. Because they have to do the, the act of pulling hair and all that stuff. And Mula's big thing is like, she'd be all sweaty and all this shit. And the girls, and the turnbuckle like shit, and Mula's going around. <laughs> you know, we got the humor. And then the humor of the locker room interviews were like, this is funny shit. And you can only find this kind of humor in wrestling. Like each, each little weird pocket of, uh, of cult stuff it has its own humor, and wrestling had great humor. If the wrestlers, like Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes are the funniest guys, Piper, you know? They just let them lose. We would just sit there listening to Dusty Rhodes just fucking cracking up, man. I mean, the guy was a goof, you know? He was like this big butterball, and he was like the American <laughs> Dream and shit. But he was funny as hell and quick. The bull of the wood, the wood, you know, kind of was fingering all this shit, and then Piper's yelling, you know, and and Flair, you know, he has to, he's getting his ass kicked, so he does the strut, trying to leave the, <laughs> leave the ring, and he's sweating and all beat up. Just funny stuff. But Hyman, he was like, you know, he just really, it just really, he just thought it was the greatest entertainment, you know. Were you? Did, did you remember Piper getting like, you know? real heat in LA like like wasn't his gimmick as a racist pretty much in in LA I, I he might I, I don't know what days this would be if you know because uh, we saw Piper it must have been uh, late 70s by racist you mean like it like um, against Mexican people yeah yeah so he, that, you know, it's the act because he did that I because I remember he would uh, wrestle uh, in Oxnard where we're from uh, they would have wrestling matches there and because they knew it was the Mexican audience, that's who, who, who supported wrestling during those right before WWF uh, got back with the Wendy, the, the Wendy Richter uh, Muda thing. Uh, it was pretty dead. And so it was desperate. Like a lot of wrestlers were just wrestling anywhere. And so, so they'd go to Oxnard and there was a big crowd because all Mexicans there. Uh, farm workers and stuff. That's who liked it. Grandmas. You know, you've seen it in the movies where it's the old lady. It's, that's true, man. It's it's. So uh, anyway, so uh, Piper, I remember Piper was there and Hymet and Hymet saying, well, that's right, Piper, he's the star. And he was just kind of like a, you know, just kind of stiff. And I remember everybody's, ah, Piper, he was, ah, bah, bah, bah. And he turned around and said, remember, this is just like a little gym. Not, not even a gym, a small room. And Piper just turned around with the audience and says, what are you going to fucking do about it? And it was like, ooh. <laughs> you know, it was like, all right. This is the, I died to my head. I go, this is the shit. <laughs> it was the greatest, one of the greatest wrestling matches because it was in a community center. That's what it was. in this little room. And then you had to get across this a grassy knoll to get into the building. And I guess that's where their dressing room were. So Piper and this guy were TNT Tom Jones. They're wrestling. Stuff, and they ran out. And what's supposed to happen is you run out of the ring. And that's the end of the, the, the gig. You're right. It's, you know, they go through the door and everybody's like, oh, that's great. Everybody decided to follow them. So they had to keep the act up. But here they are on this quad. This, this, this house, you know, families hang on and stuff. And they're just beating the shit out of it. And they had to, and, and since people were close, they had to connect because you had to hear it. So it was like, well, we're just standing there like, oh, man, where's this going? And Piper actually got a trash can full of trash and smashed it on the guy. And, was like, and he ran into the building and the door was luckily open for him. So he had it and this guy started running and Piper locked it. And he was on the other side, go, nah. and he just ran. And so the, the guy, TNT, John Jones, had to be interviewed out there. He goes, do you want a rematch? And all this stuff. It was on the outside. And like I said, this is before WWF. So we were just like, this is fucking amazing, <laughs> you know. 
but I could see that, that it was out of desperation in a way. You know, it was a little bit like, wow. But what it got me is how professional they were. They just, they did it. They pulled it off. And because I, I remember uh, the week before Andre the Giant and somebody else wrestled, my brother happened to be with friends and they were walking, they were just walking through the community center and the wrestling was going on. They go, oh yeah, look at wrestling's going on. And they saw Andre and this, uh, the uh, his opponent running out of the building and then just kind of slowing down and then stopping going and just going there. Okay. And they just kind of walked. So that was what was supposed to happen, but the Piper went crazy because it's Piper. Would you ever hook up with like like Glenn Bray is a is a big wrestling guy? Did did you know did you know him uh, back in the day? Like were, were you guys at similar shows? Like is, is that different territories? That's a different time. He's older, uh, and him and his friend uh, and his friend they they went to wrestling in the sixties. They were their thing was the sixties going to the Olympic in LA. Uh, you know we didn't go till mid seventies. Like you know and that was just an Oxford. But they would go to the Olympic show, and they would, and they there's there's even a whole movie uh, with him and his friend, and Freddie Blassie's got one of them in the headlock. It's just a whole movie, you know, because yeah, these guys were super into wrestling, and they would they would they'd glam, yeah, yeah, they would go all the way to LA. They're living in LA, I think, and uh, and, and you see the, the the whole movies, and they got you know short butch haircuts because it's the mid the early sixties, you know, and, and it's because it, later on his his friend had really long hair, but but uh, anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, they would have pictures, you know, and shots of classic he, and stuff. He told so you could, yeah. If, he, if you ever interview Glenn Bray, he could tell you all that. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. He 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 said this one time. Uh, he somehow he convinced his mom to let uh, gorgeous George come over for dinner, and <laughs> and she uh, she made them steaks and stuff, and then uh, and then uh, when gorgeous George is done, he's like. I like to take a nap after I eat my dinner, and then he like took a cat nap on their on their couch. <laughs> George, ah, he was a great uh, influencer. Uh, he influenced Muhammad Ali's act. He influenced, you know, all the shit talking guys, you know, the wise guys. You know, he influenced that. Muhammad Ali loved loved uh, gorgeous George, and that's where he got his shtick from. His wise guy shtick, you know, because it was funny. You know, it's just. Yeah, I read the uh, the gorgeous George. I guess I don't know if it was an, it must have been a biography. I don't think it was a memoir. And uh, Bob Dylan and James Brown also took some stuff from his act because he was that okay. first first uh, like television generation. So mm-hmm. you know you mm-hmm. picture the white hair on the screen on a little tiny black and white screen, and it's like, oh yeah, that's the blueprint for you know popping off that screen. And it's cognitive dissonance because it's it's would be considered gay to be at that time to be making your hair all blonde and prancing around with a guy with like a little spray yeah. thing of perfume but then you're also a tough guy and you're kicking yeah. some ass yeah that was all the all the wrestling elements were there yeah gilbert what do you have on your drawing table right now man like what's what's uh what are you working on and what's on the horizon i usually work on three comics at once uh usually uh but not like intensely you know just sort of getting it together like I'll, i i get bored quick so i'll do a page of pencil a page of love and rockets and, and it's only half written and i'm like oh, put it aside and so instead of sitting there twiddling my thumb i'll just put out a page for something else and then, like i said it's either inking or borders or so right now it's a, the next love and rockets uh 15 i think it is uh and i'm trying to figure out you know what, 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 what a lot of the dialogue is even though i know what it's about sometimes the dialogue co- i know what the story's about i know what the character is doing but i'm not sure what what information the reader knows to go forward. See, I'm, we're always trying to make Lone Rockets go forward, even though sometimes an issue just seems like a, 
you know, just it's just sitting there, you know, whether good or bad, you know. Uh, I just didn't, uh, you know. Anyway, so it's Love and Rockets, and uh, over the next, uh, I'm going to try to get uh, next uh, two psychodrama illustrated out before the next that issue, because uh, this one was supposed to come up before, but I just got behind. I just keep, I just keep uh, piling up the work on, on a load, and I just keep getting behind. And I want to catch up. I just try to keep Love and Rockets on the top of the schedule because you know Jaime's working on it, so we got to get it up. And I know that uh, come come to the turn of the new year, I th I, there's going to be the collections of uh, the sketchbooks, which is going to be a very very uh, e e exciting thing. Any other b uh, big collections uh, coming out in uh, 2024? Not that I know of. Because I, I got a, had a couple of collections already this year, you know, and uh, so I don't think this uh, that I know of. Uh, I'll probably what I usually do is I have I have my uh, collections all separate and in. in you know FedEx boxes, and <laughs> I just pull them out, and I see uh, which is the best one to, to do next. You know, it, pretty much. That's why the Fritz books come out so uh, more often is because I've already done them, and then I just had to add some pages and you know, get them out. But it, it depends. It depends. And and there was recently the uh, the beautiful kind of PBS documentary uh, yeah. a, a, about you guys. Uh, and did did you find that did that that uh serve you in your any way like do you notice uh some uptick in comic sales like uh what what was that experience like um well it, <laughs> i would we glad they did it i thought they did a real good job even though i i i watched it a couple of times and i just nitpick it you know i just go oh no, no, no. oh why did i say that oh why did they show this why did they do that you know um but uh i don't know i don't think so I think it's that it's we're, we're really past all that. The interest is, is is somewhere else. You know, the interest in what comics are, what you know, Love and Rockets doesn't have a, a pulse anymore the way it did. I don't think. I mean, uh, you know, when something like a documentary happens, you know, before if a documentary happened, like say twenty years ago, maybe twenty five or something, it would we, there would have been some notice. We would have started getting phone calls. We started getting the Hollywood calls again. We would have started, uh, but nothing. Poof. It's just it's just been so long, you know. The the culture's so weird. Part. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's not a monoculture anymore. Like uh, when there was thirty channels and there's like a documentary, there, you could bet that there's a whole bunch of people. But like, uh, you know, we saw it, we loved it, and I think I think there's some kind of fantagraphics thing in the works. And you know what I said when they because they were trying to get. I'm sure you got the emails of like, gotta sign off and make it okay. And then I put this note like, let's get some like cartoonists talking on it because because uh the love and rockets thing had like academics and things and it's like what was dan klaus on that motherfucker man you know they just want, they wanted it to they just wanted to elevate it they, you know for themselves pbs they wanted it to be like they didn't just want to sell it to comics you know they wanted to sell it to like this is happening this is latinos you know there's always that going on especially in south here is uh you know we got to just you know we got to find our place and we got to you know support it and get it out there so something like uh love and rockets is unusual because you know latino guys and then we were into punk and that's what fueled us to do comics and you know this and that and since you know la had its own uh, scene uh they like to exploit that you know so so it worked out and it's always like the guys that do these you find out like the guys that made this they're super into uh punk rock so that's why they wanted us to talk about punk 
and I've, I've done we've done other interviews. We just did one in L.A. where you know, and it's a big crowd of people, and all they wanted to know was about punk, because you know it's legendary. I go, you know, it's it, it's legendary, I guess, because it's old. But when we were there, it was like, who's playing tonight? Oh, whatever, you know. Oh, we got to drive that far. Oh, there's nobody here, you know. <laughs> you know that there was a lot of that, even though they're great bands. Like we saw X right before they put out their first album, and they were so fucking good. And I would just see them every time they played, but you know, LA is 60 miles away from where I lived. So, you know, I would skip gigs. And guys, what did you skip the gig? Why? I go, well, I saw them 20 times, you know. And now I'm like, why did I skip those gigs? <laughs> yeah. Good to go, Jimmy? Yeah. I, I, you know what? I actually, one more thing before we, we wrap up. Um, I talked to you a couple years ago, Gilbert, and you were talking about like your work schedule, and it was a very, uh, like a blue collar schedule, like a nine to five kind of work schedule. Do you still work that way? Uh, roughly, uh, I get up, you know, I get up, you know, breakfast, and also I get all cleaned up and all that stuff. And, you know, and, and just, you know, sober up, basically. <laughs> and then uh, start around nine-ish, nine-ish, 8.30, 9-ish, uh, you know, drawing and working. And I work all day till five. Uh, uh, I mean, there's it, sometimes things happen. You got to go somewhere. You got to do something. But normally, it's just I'm here all day till five, and then once, yeah, once it's five o'clock, I I just stop. That's it. No more comics. No more drawing. No more nothing. Unless, of course, what happened. What often happens is, is you just you're doing something else, and you think of something like oh, so you got to. But, but what I do is I'll run back to the drawing board, and I'll just make a note of it because I'll remember it. if as long as I have a note, I'll remember what I was I wanted to do. Uh, so anyway, that's that's pretty much it. I work from nine to five, you know, with breaks, lunch breaks, and stuff. Super cool. Yeah. So so uh, so Gilbert, uh, Love and Rockets always on the horizon. Uh, do you participate in any kind of social media? Anything that we could point the uh, the audience to to uh, to serve you and benefit you somehow? I, I have no idea how to connect with people on social media. <laughs> so so what so what we say is. Love and Rockets is out there. Uh, we we celebrate Love and Rockets often on the channel, and uh, don't worry about what number of the issue it is. You just grab grab an issue and put it together, man. You guys like your uh, Chris Claremont X Men's. You didn't understand what the fuck was going on in that issue of X Men that you scooped up. You you uh, you get the next issue. You get the one prior. You 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 build awareness, man. So scoop up Love and Rockets. Uh, Gilbert and Jaime, two of the best doing it. And uh, got to support that work. So thank you so much for, for giving us some of your time, Uncle Gilbert. Uh, every time I see you guys, like in San Diego or something, I say the same thing, man. And Because uh, like usually the bros are doing a signing like right before it's like my time to do a signing. And of course their signing goes over, right? Like, like it's like they want me to be there at like say 1 p.m. But like they're signing because they got a line. And you guys will be like, oh, so sorry, so sorry. And it's like, no, you guys built the house. I walk in the door and I get to enjoy my life and, and the th the opportunities I have because you guys were there in fucking 1982 when your peers are ElfQuest and Cerebus and like some wackadoo Europeans doing shit in heavy metal and maybe a couple dudes doing some stuff in National Lampoon. But you, you guys are building the frame that we get to walk through. And I uh, I friggin' love you guys. Th thank you so much for coming through. I say it all the time. We, we give Kirby all the credit for inventing all this comics language. And I feel like 
you and your brother have, have, have contributed as much at this point. Like there are generations upon generations now that are coming out with the, what we call alternative comics, but really it's a whole new language that you brought to comics that has become kind of the norm. And, and who knows at this point, probably more comics readers are familiar with that language that you guys have really popularized than, than the superhero stuff. So thank you so much. Yes. Well, thank you guys. Cause I, you know, it's hard for us to see. I'm glad you guys could see this stuff. You investigate, check it out, you weigh it with other stuff, and that's great. That's why I really like this this show you guys do, is because you guys are so into even even and even when you go crazy about going into the detail of how a guy inked an ankle or something. Like that. <laughs> I think that's good because a lot of that was lost with the comics journal. It was all about the writing and the, the largeness of scope and intelligence and, and adulthood. Uh, at least that's what they were trying to do. And the, what was lost is just the detail of enjoying the artwork and how stuff was put together, you know, and, and how a certain artist will look, be obsessive with certain details. And, and you guys look at that and ask questions. And that, that's what I really like. That's cool. Let me bring it back full circle, too, because early on you said you went to a convention, you saw Carl Barks, and you were, like, too shy to go up to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seemed like real, a real conscious effort. You guys... I didn't see you guys at conventions for a long time. And then you show up at like SPX and that was the first time I, I like laid eyes on you guys and everybody was too scared to talk to you guys. And then like, I just went up and was like, thank you so much. I basically said this spiel that I did. So, uh, it's that full circle thing where like, you're afraid to talk to Carl Barks and then you guys show up at SPX and everybody, a hundred percent of people are like afraid to even go up to you. And listen, man, look, you guys, audience, cool dude. Like, you can talk to him about any number of things. Don't be shy. Yeah, it's a little different now because since, uh, because of, I guess, the indie scene and the punk scene and stuff, a lot of people are, are, are closer together than they were before. Whereas, like, you talk to Will Eisner and Kurtzman, sometimes you just didn't have anything to talk about because, you know, they were older guys and they, they would talk about the history of comic or their, their, their experiences and this and that. But that's as far as it went. You never got to, like, hang with them talking to them you know uh you know i tried but it, you know it just didn't relate you know and i think it's different now because like you said these people at SPX and stuff they can just come to us and talk to us we're not going to be these old guys who don't you know know how to talk to young people we don't know what comics they like or do but uh you know we can talk to us you know, human, you know. <laughs> thanks thanks so much gilbert hey favors, so thank like, you follow subscribe to the youtube channel hit the bell so that we can notify you when new videos are uh, available uh the vids are brought to you by the books that we make and uh before you is a very robust section of uh the books that we have available uh to begin there's the hip-hop family tree omnibus uh collecting all of my hip-hop family tree works it's the 10-year anniversary of hip-hop family tree 50th anniversary of hip-hop as a culture uh the books are going quick the books are going fast and uh they're flying off the store shelves so get it quickly uh if you want it uh in any sort of timely fashion not the only holiday effort got the trade paperback for the x-men grand design trilogy from marvel comics is going to be available in stores on november 14th got the copies of that uh right now two trade paperbacks of red room are out there anti-social network and trigger warnings with a third coming to you called crypto killers in 2024 uh january jimmy what do you have Street Angel, Princess of Poverty is my next release. It'll be out at the end of November 
from Image Comics. You should be able to get that wherever books are bought and sold. It is a companion piece to Street Angel Deadly Squirrel Alive, also from Image Comics. These two books, besides looking good on your shelf like a set next to each other, collect all of the Street Angel comics that I have made so far. So pick up both of those if you haven't already. I have been self-publishing True Crime Funnies. It's a collection of nonfiction stories, the 1986 zine celebrating the greatest year in comics history, and the BW zine celebrating the black and white explosion and self-publishing boom of the 80s and early 90s. These are all available on patreon.com slash jimrug if you want to read them now. Otherwise, uh, follow me and I'll let you know whenever they're available to buy from my website, jimrug.com. And Hulk Grand Design, my contribution to the Grand Design series. Um, I believe these are out of print, so pick it up if you haven't already whenever you see it in a comic shop. Um, these are disappearing fast and hard to tell when they'll be back. The books are the most important part of keeping that Cartoonist Kayfabe channel going. Uh, we are a daily YouTube channel with more than 1,500 videos uh, available to you right now. Give the channel a search. Uh, go on the front page. Hit the magnifying glass. Search for your favorite comics. Check out those episodes. If we did not talk about your favorite uh, comics let us know what they are in the comments and we will uh, push those comics a little bit higher on our uh, to read piles uh, the patreon helps subsidize the cartoonist kayfabe channel uh, three different levels of participation there but the king kayfabers the you know the top dogs they get all the videos that we shoot before anybody else gets to see them they're hanging out with us in the live stream uh, chat room right now as we are recording and we always shoot a couple extra videos at least one extra video so uh, there's a big queue of videos that develop that only the kings have access to before we release those you know later on down the line when jimmy and i have to take a break or something like this uh once again the books are the most important part but there are a few other ways to support the channel jimmy let the people know you can subscribe to the cartoonist kfab newsletter at the links below this video to keep up on what we have coming out and when you can also pick up cartoonist kfab t-shirts merchandise Hats, cups, mugs, stickers, and lots more of the Cartoonist Kayfabe Enterprise <laughs> at our spread shop. That link is also under this video. So uh, there it is. We laid it out. You have uh, num num numerous ways that you can uh, support the channel and keep these videos coming to you on a regular basis. Jimmy, without further ado, uh, let's get out of here. But first, please give everybody their marching orders. Read more comics. Make more comics.